I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. You're listening to Chosen Family. It's a podcast. It's a live Facebook thing. It's a way of life. And it's produced and presented by the amazing people at FI. I'm Trana Winter. I'm Thomas LeBlanc. And And this this is is our show. Good morning, Trana. Good morning. (laughs) Welcome to Chosen Family, everybody. Episode six. You know it. Late October. What a time to be alive. 2017. What what a good, good year. It's... (laughs) The world is on fire. Everything's on fire. It's a dumpster fire right now. And... Ultimately, that's a good thing. I think everything needs to yeah. burn down and so we can rebuild. And But it's a really overwhelming moment. I mean, I, mean, I, I say this very, very humbly because obviously I'm witnessing a lot of this. I, mean, I haven't really experienced a lot of the sexual violence that people are talking about. But like... I don't even know how to take care of myself anymore. You know, like what, like reading online and then in our community, in the comedy community, we've heard, you know, some people coming forward and we've read some people coming forward. And now, like, I just feel so, so powerless. I want to stuff my face. I know. Not take care of myself. Powerless to an extent, yes. But I think that there's this moment of claiming power, too, that we have not seen before. And, you know, I feel like, it's sort of like one by one, we're taking these targets out and we're sort of, you know, executing justice on our own terms because we can't rely on the systems in place yeah. to take care of us. Well, um, they, this, the, this, the system in place has been defending a lot of abuses for a long time. Exactly. But now we've sort of taken matters into our own hands. and But we've never really done this before. And it's, I don't even know, I don't even have the words. But it's, it's kind of a fantasy, though, to well, like have like feminists and queer people being like this is enough i mean i've always kind of wanted to start like <laughs> yeah, an I, know, LGBTQ I know you plus feminist assassin squad you know to be very you know honest. that's a plot line in kai cheng tom's uh like memoir oh that's or amazing published earlier this year yeah um because i feel like we have been so powers for for so long and um but you know when i when i read the stories um that people are sharing which is incredible and i'm just Every time I read an account of someone's experience, I'm just so in awe of their bravery and willingness to share in the name of coming together. Mm -hmm. Um, It really blows my mind. But it also makes me realize that a lot of things that I've experienced in my own life that I've always sort of just written off as normal behavior Mm -hmm. or normal treatment is not, you know, and it's I, I don't know. It's overwhelming. And a lot of it is happening on social media. And in a way, the, what people are saying is there's a risk that we're that, that everybody's going to turn into a mob. You know, we're right. just going to turn like the mob mentality will like take over. But in a different way, like we've been like not we, but like the like the culture has been protecting abusers for so, so long yeah. that what is better, you know, is the mob mentality in a way better than like the systemic protection of, of abusers. I don't know. I think we're we're I don't think anything can really be labeled better or worse. But 
I mean, I don't even know. I'm also like, <laughs> there's a part of me that's even scared to talk because yeah. there's this other side of no one being able to do the right thing. And so while there is very much this solidarity, I also see victims calling out other victims and there's... There's this um, there's this judgment on the way that people are sharing on on the way that they are being activists, and I feel to a certain extent that it's like nothing is good enough, nothing is strong enough, nothing is powerful enough. But people need to realize that we are living a moment that we've never really lived before. So we're mm-hmm. all trying to find our way through it. We're all trying to understand how we can be of service, how we can make things change. But no one has all the answers right now. And I think we need to be a little forgiving towards one another and a little open and not so judgmental of each other. I feel like there's also this enormous judgmentalness going on um, that well, to me la- is oppressive and frightening. The language is... is- so intense you know the language of of abuse and oppression and victims yeah. and the hashtag and and what i read a lot online is how people who who came forward with the hashtag me too were not seeing themselves as victims before right well i mean i think that's been my case and yeah. i'm again even scared to say this but i have never really looked at myself yeah as a me victim. neither but but i guess like this is the thing too i think trauma is subjective To a certain extent, just hear me out. Don't freak out, mm-hmm. people. <laughs> But what what is traumatic to someone might not necessarily be traumatic to someone else. And But what we need to understand is that as soon as someone experiences something as trauma, that's an assault, you know? And I think that's where things get difficult is like, how do we define assault? How do we define abuse? I think... I think it's it's based on that person's individual experience. And and in a way, with all of this, you know, being exposed now in a very, very, very selfish way, I don't feel like enjoying myself. Right. You know, in a lot of ways, I feel like just abusing myself, stuffing my face with Oreos, not right. having, you know, like having sex, but not enjoying it. You know, <laughs> I was having sex last week and I was like... How can I even enjoy this with all of these allegations? First of all, I don't understand guys who would go after men and women who would not, you know, consent. It's right. like awful. Like, you know, sex you want it to be consensual. I don't understand. I don't understand either. Um, it, it's hard to get into that, to, into the mentality of an abuser when you're not one. <laughs> um, but... I mean, I don't know. I just like I feel the same. It it, I, I'm just so filled with so much rage mm-hmm. and anger and this desire to retaliate and to bring justice to everyone who needs it. But I'm just one person. What am I going to do? Like, <laughs> I mean, I have to do my part. There's no question. But how do you take care of yourself? Like, let's say in all of this, how do you? I don't know. I'm not doing a really good job <laughs> of it. Like, I've never been like a compulsive eater. Like, I can. I can take three cookies out of the box and be satisfied with those three cookies. And now it's like I want to eat the whole box. I'm like looking for distractions. I'm like looking for satisfaction in in little ways and wherever I can get it. But I am, like all of us, just consumed by yeah. what is going on. I'm and maybe that's the way that it needs to be. Impulsively reading everything. Me yeah. too. Like, one, one thing that people are not talking about, though, is how, you know, I think journalism is has a big part of... of you know, is playing a good role in all of this. But the media is 
is sort of like surfing on that wave in a lot of like it's it's almost I'm not I'm not talking about this sort of real inquiries like what the New York Times did or the piece in the New Yorker about Weinstein or here in Quebec some other pieces but just like it's very clickbaity it is you know like all like every like media outlet is trying to like get you on their side get you to share their link get you to share their think piece yeah. about this and I'm not sure that this like overwhelming content right. is really that much part of the solution I don't th- I mean we even had a piece written by Mayim Bialik like who the fuck cares Um, like it's just too much and I think that um, I think journalism has failed us you know as a society it has failed us um, I mean miserably it you know all that media attention that was given to DT in the election like you know the media is so largely responsible um, for this and the media could be such a powerful tool for bringing about real information and well, it's, and it's, strategies for real change. It's but, a little but, bit what's going on. It's I feel it's mixed. I feel it's really mixed because the work that's been done by, you know, the, the female journalists at the New York Times and, and here in Quebec for the two like sex scandals that right. took, shook the province last week. And, you know, that work without that work, not, none of this would have been po- like, I think. No, it's not true. Like the, the social media element was really right. powerful. But like without the, the sort of journalism to leverage it. Right. I don't think we'll be we would be as shook by it yeah i think it's a it's a combination thank god we have a good show we it's (laughs) that's what we can give you you know chosen family is obviously a safe space and a place where hopefully you know dialogue can happen in a very unthreatening way we can heal in a cool way yeah and i just like (laughs) i hope that it's clear that i mean like i never want it ever to come across as if I have the answers to anything. No. I don't. Like, just like everyone else, I'm learning the as we go along. The thing is, your tone, Toronto is very assertive. Well, there are, <laughs> yes. And I, and that is who I am. I am assertive, but I'm always... You're the authority. No. You know, when you speak, you're like, I have the answers. Well, but I'm always willing to be wrong, <laughs> FYI. And I just, I just want to wrap up this discussion just by, once again, just... Just honoring the bravery of of everyone that has come forward with their stories, because I think it's incredibly important, even just on the very primal level of letting people not feel so alone in their Mm. experience. Just that Mm. alone already is so significant and so important. And I am just genuinely in complete awe of the bravery that we're seeing. So I think it's time to bring in our guest. Yes. Um, Brave, bold, (laughs) um, a literary legend, a New York icon. We are so lucky to have with us today the incredible Eileen Miles. Eileen, welcome to Montreal. Oh, uh, welcome you. to the Phi Center. Yes. So you 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 you've heard the introduction. You've heard the conversation. Yes, yes. What I you, could have jumped you, in. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Points. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> so what do you have to say about what's going on right now in the culture? Um, I I I both embrace it and distrust it. Right. You know, I was just thinking that I've lived through moments where suddenly we discovered incest. Mm-hmm. Suddenly we discovered rape. You know, that was the eighties and the nineties. What do you and, mean discovering? Well, it was just suddenly like somebody came forward and somebody else came right. forward and there was right. a book and there were revelations and there were trials and there were like absurd trials and there were witch hunts and, yeah. you know, there were so many levels of, of discourse and questioning and, you know, chest bearing and, and there were really good things, but then they kind of passed like blips. Right. And we're, we're, we're over incest now and, and yeah, you were raped and so I think on. that's the biggest problem. It's when these things came to light at all these different moments, it was never dealt with in a real way. Uh-huh. It was, it came to light 
It was sort of addressed, then it was forgotten, swept under the rug, and it's all, it's this accumulation. Well, what you said earlier about I want to burn it all down, the problem is that's kind of what needs to happen in a way. It's sort of like we are talking about something called patriarchy, yes. which nobody wants to use that word because yeah. it's so cliched and 70s and PC and feminist right. and whatever. But the fact that's of the matter. That's what map, it is. Yeah, because it's like. I mean, Weinstein, for instance, I mean, the story I heard was that, in fact, he was at a lower point in his career. Crashing, yeah. The reason you could throw this sacrificial lamb. Right. Also, um, can I say it? Fat Jew. You know, all the mm-hmm. anti-Semitism. All, he's the appropriate abuser. Right. You know, as opposed to when we watch Casey Affleck, white male, heterosexual meat, Oscar meat. Yeah. White Oscar meat. Are we going to take him down? Everybody knew that he had done something. Right. Didn't make a blip. Nobody would take it on. And you watch the cringe of the woman who received her Best Actress Award from that that disgusting guy. I know. Yeah. And we see that in so many industries, you know, where we know it. And we're still allowing it to happen, you yeah. know, like Terry Richardson in the and, fashion and, world, and uh-huh. and all of those all industries stories, that are not as as glamorous. Also, yeah, you know, it's a like, question of what your value is. Because again, I think Casey Affleck, I think Woody Allen, these are artists mm-hmm. that we revere. Weinstein's a producer and at a low point, right? So it's just there's a little, you know. And then I think the thing you were saying about trauma and and people denying that they went through trauma. I think trauma so... I mean, I've been traumatized. I've right. been sexually assaulted and so you, you, you've spoken a lot about your own sobriety. I'm sober. I've been six years sober. There are uh-huh. two kinds of sober people. There are people who were not ever that interested in drugs and alcohol. Trana, I think you're one of yeah, those. Yeah, I've just never gone... <laughs> I've never gone down that road. But I have right. a whole lineage. You're just not drunk. Yeah. No, but I have a whole... It's in my... You yeah. know, and, I have a whole lineage and of alcoholics. Genetics? Yeah, or, on yeah. my father's side, who's not I, a part of my life. Yeah. And I think... I think also for me, like that not wanting to drink or do drugs was not wanting to be associated with my idea of him. Right. You know, right. And, and there are people who were too interested in drugs and alcohol. <laughs> and I was certainly one. I am certainly oh, yeah. one of them. Yeah. Yeah. No, I was a falling down drunk and I love drugs of all kinds and was really lucky that I came through that without several, you know. But I mean, experiencing that moment right now as a sober addict, I feel there's a level of understanding that. Mm-hmm. You know, some people, if they're, you know, high out of their minds or if, if they're in the problem and they, they haven't really sort of addressed the problem or the trauma, there's no way really that they can, like, see themselves as the trauma, predators. Trauma can take you down. And yeah. I think every time we look at a suicide by a woman, by a queer person, I think there was trauma there. Yeah. yeah. And they didn't – like in that – remember the Nate Parker scandal and then the the woman who was – you know, gang raped mm-hmm. when yep. he was in college and so on. And her story was the dark story. It was just like, yep. and she went on and she was depressed and she killed herself. And end of that story. And I think every woman, every queer, every person who's like kept going, you sort of you sort of take the trauma in and it drives you. Yeah, you're almost like your own kind of borderline. You right. know, it's sort of like that's almost like success meat. You know, I'm going to show them. You how, know? But how do you how do you live with that after so many years? You've been sober 34 years. Yeah. I'm guessing that you've dealt with a lot of that. I mean, it comes and it goes. I mean, I think I, I feel lucky that I have memory to access and to use when I mean, like, I think the, the trick of when knowing when to say something and when not to say something is something I'm still negotiating and learning. Right. I think that's the hard, one of the hardest parts about this moment that we're in is right. when do you say something? How do you say something? Because yeah. it's so easy to take something the wrong way. Yeah. And you've used the, the, the word loudmouth 
yourself to <laughs> right. describe it's been, your. It's been used against me. Against you, but I, I, I think you should own. Do you own it? Well, yes and no. I mean, it just when I see it in the hands of journal, like like journalists, where I said in the course of some interview, you might think I'm this. I mean, right. you might think I'm a genius, or you might think I'm a loudmouth lesbian. And then the article, the, yes, the banner yeah. is loudmouth lesbian, and then it goes into a festival where that's in my bio, <laughs> and I was like, wait a second, this Whoa. is homophobia now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. how to get there? Yeah, yeah. So it's like the how thing do you? Yeah, because language as a writer, language. Language is everywhere. It's limiting. It's freeing. Yeah. How do we deal with language right now? I again, I think we just we just you know we try and be skillful and awake. I mean, right. I keep meaning. I've gone through streaks where I've meditated a lot, and that's not been lately. A few days ago, I did a minute. I was like a minute, just do a minute, you know, and yeah. get going because I need to be conscious, and it's so hard. Right. And if I'm not conscious, I say things, and I think, why did I say that? I mean, I'm pretty good, but I right. mess up, and then I feel like uh, I wasn't awake. Right. Um, but that uh, when you mentioned the way that, you know, you'll say in an interview, I'm a loudmouth lesbian, that sort of becomes how you're the labeled. Sobriquet, or um, sobriquet, they say. Yeah, Especially yeah. for you right now, having this moment where you're getting a lot of mainstream attention. Right. Do you feel sort of suffocated by having to explain who you are to people? Because I feel like you're someone who tends to shy away from labels. Your pronoun is they. Uh-huh. So there's this sort of rejection of the binary and these sort right. of like limitations of and, and even as a writer, labels. you would go from poetry to prose and fiction and right. sort of... Which is sort of gender fluid or genre fluid. Exactly. Well, they, of course, I feel like they keeps becoming part of the discussion. Mm -hmm. And I was like, can't I simply say that's my pronoun like it was the beginning of a class rather than that being a conversation now? And I think part of it is, is it ageism that, that, I'm not, you know, and I knew that. I thought it's right. so fun because I've always felt like they, they just wasn't a they to you. Right. Yeah. And so now I pick it up and people are like, you're in your 60s. You're using they. I thought kids do that. And I was like, why do I have to? I'm, <laughs> I'm allowed to continue to be radical right. and find new ways to express my, my being. But do you feel like people are trying to put you in a box? You know, do you feel like now that you're profiled in the New York Times and, and getting all this attention that people just want to try to figure you out. But people want to talk about that. Right. People want me to pick my ca- scabs with them instead of becoming like a major writer or a, a queer pundit or, you know, let's talk about, I mean, like, I think we're talking about all of it. And right. that's great. But I think there's a weird way, like, you know, even in my novels and stuff, I've always called novels, not memoirs. Mm-hmm. So then half of everything will be like, why is this a novel? It's a memoir. Miles thinks it's a novel. Yeah. You know, we're just right. like fighting the yeah. gender. Yeah. Because it, and I think that's so much about female power. You know, that, that I, as one who is perceived to be female, I really don't have the right mm-hmm. to set the boundaries. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think the most interesting thing coming up with all the sexual harassment is the micro moments. You know, like in Claudia Rankine's The Microaggressions. Everybody who's female or queer has had the experience of being in a restaurant and some waiter comes and hip touches, kind of scoots around you. And lately there was some Brit who like didn't – somebody went to jail. A a Scottish guy went to jail in the Middle East for hip touching a man, an Arab as they said. And I realized everybody was so appalled. This is touchy. These like overly sensitive Arabs. I was like – Every woman's skin crawls yeah. when somebody idly hip touches me and has no right yeah. to touch my body. Exactly. And it's just like, that's nothing. That's nothing. We're going to rape, you know, mm-hmm. so it's sort of like a hip touch is a joke. How dare I have boundaries? How dare I think right. you don't have the right to touch me? 
Well, I was going through, I know it sounds stalkerish, but I was <laughs> reading your, just a couple of your most recent tweets, mm-hmm. you know, getting ready for today's conversation. Yeah. And, and I saw you write about the hip touching and it was like, I just never thought about it. Yeah. But then as soon as I read that, you think of all the instances and it's mm-hmm. like, yeah, there's no, there's no respect for my boundaries. I feel like, you know, as a trans person, there's always been, or even just as a queer kid who didn't know what they were yet. Right. Um, just the entitlement that people feel to enter your space uh-huh. and say what they want and just, it, it's so overwhelming. I have the right to move you around. Yeah. I'm at mm. work. I'm at work. Yeah. I don't know what you're doing. You're an object, yeah. Yeah, you're just yeah. going to the bathroom or whatever the hell yeah. I'm doing. You know, and likewise, just the, the thing of, I don't know how to negotiate. And I, I, you know, you walk into a restaurant, you walk into a hotel, you you open a door, they say, ma'am, they say, miss. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, it's like the older I get, the angrier I get. Yeah. It's like, how dare you decide what my genitals yeah. are? Mm-hmm. I, I, yeah. I feel like, you know, it's it makes me, ladies, you ladies you, ready now? You finished eating? You know, I it's know. sort of, and it's so weird, of course, because we'll be a number of things sitting at the table. Some like ladies, some I, don't like ladies. Have you, have, all, have you always felt that way? Or you feel empowered by the younger generation sort of... I think I've always yeah. felt that way to some extent, but it seems like it's sort mm. of like rising. My yeah. gorge is rising. Yeah. You know, it's just like because it's it seems wronger, and I think I my and I think my power rising, yeah. and I've I've always followed. Um, I think it was Maya Angelou who would be like talking about some guy who was driving her and say, "Hey, Maya, really?" And she was like, "Excuse me, my name is Miss Yeah." Angelou, how yeah. dare you? You know, and I and I thought that's cool, but that's so tough, right? You know, but I feel like I feel like that now, and I don't know whether I would feel that way whether I had this nice growing career or not, right? But just like yeah. my embodiment feels at this point, in, in a way, you're, you're, you're gender to me. Your power is protecting you right now, in a way. In a way, yeah. In yeah. a way. So you came to New York in the late seventies, mm-hmm. uh, mid seventies, yeah. <laughs> and uh, well, it's good to get it right. <laughs> <laughs> and you. I didn't miss disco early. <laughs> Sorry, it happened. Yeah. And Were you a disco fan? Yeah. Yes and no. <laughs> there was a punk disco line. You yeah. sort of weren't right. supposed to yeah. like disco, yeah. but it was really yeah. fun. Yeah. Right, exactly. And I, you know. and I love it, so that's why I had to ask. And you yeah. hung, Sylvester. You yeah. hung out with so many of the queer luminaries from the from the seventies, like poets, writers, Ginsburg, uh-huh. uh, you know, John Ashbery, of course, and uh Maplethorpe, Maplethorpe. Like how do you feel being sort of that bridge for our generation mm-hmm. that never knew these these people? like firsthand like we knew we know of them reading about them reading their work but they're not around anymore like how do you feel being that you know you were that kid around them right and now you're here and you 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 sort of trend you, you're like this transmission well it's very funny because it's sort of like you might you start to wind up being like the last man standing right <laughs> i was like suddenly i'm a beat you know yeah. and i was like because there aren't any they're all dead beats and then yeah. <laughs> and there's a live beat so you get to be i mean so that's sort of funny i guess i regard it as yeah. sort of humorous and i try and brush it off a little bit and then i claim i mean it was the point too is the scale was so different it was a small world mm-hmm. you know to come to new york in the 70s was to just you know walk into like St. Mark's Church it was this institution it happened to be the alternative church of of the weird and queer poetic nobody called it queer right. it just happened to be that right. you know and the room was open and I remember being young and standing at a party with like Allen Ginsberg and Robert Lowell and I'm like I just moved here from Boston <laughs> this is crazy that this is so easy 
Right. So it, it really was that easy. It was just that open. Because there weren't that many tunnel. I mean, there were people who would obviously write letters to those people and they would go. But there still weren't that many people who were just in the room with them. Right. And we were regarded as family. Like I remember reading, being at some benefit reading and I read my hot new poem about, you know, I just came out and the girl I was in love with didn't want me, you know, and I read this long, you know, like tortured poem. Allen Ginsberg comes running up and says, who are you? <laughs> you know, and I was like, <laughs> yeah, I'm me, you know. Did, and, did you have that like that writer's drive, you know, to achieve all of you that you achieved or at the time? It's all, you know, it's a default position. I just figured when I figured out about poetry, it was just like I was already such a. Do we use four-letter words? What's the deal here? Yes, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. I was Say such a fuck-up on yeah. so many levels. I mean, I only was good at art and being funny and writing poems. And I was a bad employee. I got fired from every job <laughs> there was. And at work, I was always writing a poem. So at some point in my earlier 20s, I figured out that what I actually was doing was writing poems, not being a good you know, yeah, right. You know, enter of uh, data into early computers and stuff. And so it just got to, it kept being like, this is the end of the road. You either go forward. When yeah. I got to New York, because I tried it was to. the move. only option, really. Yeah, I tried to move. I hitchhiked in Europe after college, because that's what we did in mm-hmm. 1971. And then I tried to move to San Francisco. I wasn't out yet. I was freaked out. I started having a nervous breakdown. Went back to Boston. I kept running away, running and running back. And then finally, I, the last time I went back, I realized I couldn't go home again. It, right. I didn't fit. Yeah. They didn't know who I was. There were no more going away parties mm-hmm. for me. And then the last move was to go to New York. And once I got there, I thought, nobody can stop me. I'm all alone. Nobody knows what I'm doing. Nobody's watching me. I can do anything I want. And, and that's a few years before you got sober. So you must. Uh... Oh, yeah. That was like, you know, eight years before. Okay. So I had some ways to go. Right. <laughs> I had some trauma to produce. <laughs> and did you have an idea of what you wanted your life and work to look like at that point? Or were you just in the moment taking things as they came? Well, I was borrowing um, ideas from Famous Lives. You know, there was Gertrude Stein, there was Oscar Wilde, there was Hart Crane. I mean, there were just all these stories of artists coming to New York or artists being in their cities and and performing themselves. And so I got that, the artist... As, as, you know, like, kind of like your life was art. Right. Yeah. I got that. And that was very big in the 70s and 80s, you know. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot about, you know, making myself up in the model of, right. you know. One thing that I find is great is you, you don't strike me as someone who's nostalgic. You know, I, you... It's like kind of like, yeah. Because <laughs> it's like traveling heavily right. heavy versus traveling light. You right. know, there's always these like, we're going to have a reunion and we're going to have a howl festival. And I mean, like, it's, it's, it seems good, but there's something inherently depressing about who we were. I, I just feel like I'm in some weird way, I'm coming into my own more yeah. now than ever, meaning that people are letting me be who yeah. I am. It's not that they were stopping me, they just weren't paying me for it. Right. <laughs> you right. know, when I was younger. So. Yeah, how did you support yourself as a poet for all these years? It's a it's a really naive question, but right. I mean, especially in those early days. Yeah. Well, crap jobs, right? And it was cheaper. Yeah, yeah. And the kindness of strangers and friends and tons of enablers. I mean, I just like, you know, there are rooms where people say, "Remember the price of your last drink," and I always got my drinks for free. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, I went where the drinks were. Right. You know? A lot of people are saying that New York has changed a lot, but you you sound like someone who's. You don't you don't sort of think about that that yeah. much. Well, I fight for it still. We're we're horrified in the same way with, we have this one conversation about politics, and we're like, okay, every every conversation is a singularity that goes there. And we were like, holy mm-hmm. shit, look where we are, you know. And so every moment in New York eventually goes to, did you see that? 
you know, right. and something right. great is gone and something horrible has been erected. But the thing is, this still it's still the people thing that yeah. I find. They're just nice. New Yorkers for, are still New Yorkers, though. Yeah. <laughs> and all of this. tables that, yeah. that accumulate at, at, you know, like there's still nights of like three events and you wind up someplace yeah. and there's a conversation. And I just can't believe who happens to be in town tonight. Right. And it's like people who live there, people who don't live there. There's just a, it's a meeting place. It's a hub. And I still regard it as home. Yeah. How did you pick, pick Marfa? Because you have a second home in uh, Texas, West Te- Western Texas. Well, it was it was a myth to me. It was just like I have, you know, I write art, write, I do art writing and I have lots of friends who are yeah. visual artists. And so I always heard of this Marfa yeah. place. And even in my tours, I was like, I want to read in Marfa. <laughs> right. And people would give me an email and that person would never answer me. I was like, how come I can't? <laughs> and there was a residency. The Lannan Foundation has these, I mean, this Art Ones, Chinati Foundation. Foundation, Marfa, you know, the Judd Foundation, but there's a literary one and I got invited at last. You know, it's sort of like for me, 50 to 60 is when I got invited. Right. Suddenly everybody's inviting yeah, me. So right. I got invited. I went for a month in this amazing posh residency. And as soon as I got there, I was like, this is the place. And I had been a college professor for five years in San Diego. It was like one of the sadder experiences of right. my life, but did many good things for me. And I love, I love teaching. It was, it was great in many ways. Right. But um, at that time, they had money and they would buy you a house. And I just got, you know, it was like I bought what? a cheap... They, they would buy you a house in San Diego? Or? To get you to come. Okay, oh, right. And I was like, I still was like a working class American right. who wanted to own a house. So yeah. I was like, okay. But so I bought a house cheap. It, the market exploded. It was oh, valuable. Amazing. By the time I had gone through the breakup and my dog died, the house was yeah. underwater and worth nothing. And and I was stuck being a landlord for seven years. So when, I, but I finally, by the time I got to Marfa, I, I, you know, I just, you know, I had enough money to. How do you buy navigate a cheap all, house. Of, all of these worlds, like the literary world on one hand, and then like TV and like you, you, I mean, you, well, TV is a recent twist. It's yeah. pretty funny. So how do, but how do you see yourself like just like in those spaces, being like, this is my life now? Do you not believe in some at some level that life is a dream? I believe it. <laughs> and, and you know how they say that you can't die in your own dream. Uh-huh. You can't experience your right. own death. You've done it a few times. So, <laughs> but I feel like, you know, I feel like that's what, I mean, who am I to say? I have no idea. But I have this idea or imagining that that the minute we come, we get to as close to death as possible, but then just wake up into the next dream right you know right, like these right. levels of dreams because i'm have you had dreams within dreams and you wake up and you think you're actually awake and then all this other weird stuff starts happening you realize oh i'm still sleeping right you know but, but i think there are miraculous moments in your life whether it's you met somebody or you're like okay this is too ridiculous that this yeah. is happening i can't believe that i can have this or that i'm meeting this person or that you love right me. you know and i was like am i awake am i sleeping yes. and it's just this kind of weird and just so the- coincidence and, and so i think that um it's weird. When I was growing up, there was a great TV show called Dobie Gillis, The Many Loves of Dobie Gillis. And it was really, it was like Bud Schulberg. I can tell you who wrote it. It was like, it was basically a Jewish comedian show. And Dobie would sit there with the crew cut with his hand on a chin and say, let me tell you about Thalia Meninger. And he would talk about his girls. Chelsea Girls is totally Dobie Gillis. Yeah, it's sort right. of like, it's the Woody Allen type guy that is just like, I'm obsessed with this girl, you know, yeah. and stuff. And so I, and his best friend on on the show with this guy named Mana G. Krebs, who is Bob Denver, who was a beatnik. Yeah. And he was always like, you rang? You know, and he was in a dirty sweatshirt. And all of us who came up in the 50s and 60s, like, for to be queer 
at Halloween was to be a beatnik. Right. And right. girls would wear berets and boys would wear sweatshirts. And, and I, that's when I could do drag. Yeah. And I'd wear a sweatshirt and jeans and I'd have a poem in my back pocket. So it was almost like my cartoon of the future was embedded in television. Yeah. It's sort of like, I think, TV mass audiences. And I remember even hearing Allen Ginsberg talk about how funny it was to see beatniks, you know, kind of cartoonized on right. TV so that when I wound up being a poet on Transparent, I thought this is so perfect. Yeah. yeah. You know, like I, because I, I've, I've said literally in books of mine, I guess I'm a television poet. Right. Because I'm so, my generation is so inspired by the yeah. golden age of television, yeah. 60s and, TV, where everybody watched the same show. And I love Transparent and, and I didn't, know that that character was based <laughs> on you and but that character is so intense yeah and do you feel like that character i mean that's i mean that's really minimizing that character the character is so complex and overwhelming and i've never seen a character like that that's so great on television before yeah, yeah. um and of course sherry jones is fantastic incredible. And we're pals and, and we, we you know we have when i met her at Jill's house the first time they had just cut her hair like mine and I don't know if you know Prince and the Popper the it's yeah. like you know it's sort of like we had a Prince and the Popper <laughs> moment where we were like <laughs> you know, it was it was so funny yeah but did you feel like I'm assuming that you watched those episodes oh sure I mean Jones. early on I mean Jill showed them to me to say like just let me right. and I was nervous but it was like the, the relief was that it wasn't me honestly yeah. okay that's what I was getting absolutely at. Yeah, it you know it was like you. a bad copy right such a bad copy that that I was in there so faintly, and it was right. more funny. And the funnier thing was that I was in the show being her friend. Right. I know. You know? Though, and, that, it's so weird to see that now, yeah. knowing that and backstory. As a, as a writer, there's just so many versions of you. There, there's the version you read in the books. And right. then there's the version we meet in person now, the version we read about in articles that we see on Transparent. Right. That we, you know, how do you, because you, you've, you've talked about that, like how right. like media just creates these like different versions of people. Right. But like ultimately, who is the real Eileen. <laughs> right. And that's the dream. And it's also the struggle, yeah. the kind of Buddhist struggle to be present, yeah. you know, and to kind of like not get too caught up in right. that being me or that not being me. And also it's just like I didn't, it didn't happen when I was in my 20s. It happened in my 50s and 60s, yeah. you know. And so it's sort of like I'm a little bit more, I'm, I'm sort of a, I'm sort of already ruined, already a wreck, already, <laughs> you know, this person. I, just talking about Transparent, though, I just want to celebrate them for a second because the thing, that I think the coolest thing that they have done is this season now where they talk about Palestine and Israel. Yes. Yeah. Nothing in Hollywood yeah. touch, would touch yeah. that. And it's yeah. not getting a lot of press. No, and I'm surprised that it's not. Well, I think it, we know why it's not. That yeah. censorship. Yeah. If we yeah. don't talk about it, it didn't happen. Yeah. You know, but I love that, that, Me that too. Jill and the show has the courage to... I haven't finished watching this yeah. season yet, but I, I'm loving it. And was... I mean, we were talking about, you know, moments that feel like a dream. Was was Jill Soloway coming into your life one of those sort of dream moments? Well, it was really, you know, it's really funny that somebody in San Francisco, there's a Jewish museum. And that's where I met Jill because it was like they in the writer's room were had this lesbian college mm -hmm. professor character. And my friend, the poet Ali Liebegott, who I had taught with in San Diego and did Sister Spit with and everything mm -hmm. is one of the writers. Mm -hmm. And so she, I think she was the one probably who said, this sounds like Eileen. Right. <laughs> and, but the thing that was weird was that somebody named Gravity, who was a curator, I've got to connect with this person, um, at the, the um, Jewish museum was putting 
putting together a show. There was like a show called Read by Famous. And what it was was really cool, like giving books to the homeless and various institutions. And the way they were fundraising was they would first they went to Jill, who's Jewish, and said, what's a book that's really influenced by you? And she said um, it was Michelle T's Valencia. And they said, can we have your copy? Right. Your dirty, smelly yeah. copy as as an auction or to put in the right. And she said yes. And then what? And then they went to Michelle and said, "What is your book?" And she said, "Chelsea Girls." Oh and my so God. then they got my yeah. her copy of Chelsea Girls. And of course, they go to me yeah. and they said, "What's that book?" And I was like, "Masochism by Deleuze," yeah. <laughs> which is like covered yeah, yeah, with crap yeah. and you know and stuff. And so then they decided to have a panel of these three women, yeah. right? And that's how me and Jill met. So the thing that's so funny and is it was I very like, public from the beginning. Yeah, yeah, we kind of had crushed out on right. stage. I was, but what I didn't know is that she was kind of cyber. She had already been cyber stalking me and doing research, and had already decided to be in a crush yeah. kind of thing with this person. Do you like that? Do you like being stalked? No, but somehow in that occasion, since I, it, Jill is very skillful, uh-huh. she's not. You yeah, know, like be, she's being a, a writer, writers are good stalkers. She I have knew to say. how to not let me know yeah, until right. we were already in a relationship. Yeah. But um, but I'd love to. I mean, the, the thing I'm obsessed with now is gravity. Where yeah. I mean, gravity is the matchmaker, yeah. you know, yeah. and it's sort of like. And Jill and you I, have, great, you have to meet them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We're, I mean, we're not. Jill and I are great friends now, and we're collaborators. And and I think Amazon is going to do a movie of Chelsea Girls now. And I wrote the screenplay. Exciting. Yeah, I've written it, okay. and sort of we're in process now. So wow. it's just like you know, it's sort of I'm the writer. They optioned it, so it's still you know how movies cannot yeah. happen, yeah. and so there's that. But I feel like it's going to happen then. That's pretty exciting. So you're in Montreal right now to uh, promote? Do we say like yeah, yeah, to share, I, to share, to share, to <laughs> like, read from? Yeah, my uh, my new book, Afterglow, yeah. uh, a, a memoir about Rosie, your dog, who died in 2006. A pit bull, a pit bull, the, the, the profile dog. And but really, it's a. I feel it's a book about creativity and voice and and that relationship between two souls yeah uh, yeah and loss you... and dream and change and trauma everything we're talking so about so talking about that project because you've been talking about that project but when you were writing it uh-huh. you were like sort of teasing at it and right. then like after it came out like how do like how do people react and even readers right now well it's a mix mostly i mean like review wise it's it's great yeah. and the thing that's so funny is that finally it's it's my alice b toklas moment mm-hmm. finally i'm writing about something that's not eileen miles right. so people are not reviewing me in the reviews mm-hmm. they're talking about the book that's yeah. great which is incredible yeah. <laughs> i was like rosie thank you you know so that's like that's probably yeah. the coolest part and then this other it was actually a hard book to sell because i had so much success with chelsea girls and and my selected that people wanted more of this kind of yeah. crazy lesbian yeah. mm-hmm. drunken yeah. and i was just like my next book is a dog book yeah. and i thought that was just sexism <laughs> and ageism that i'm not allowed to be a writer yeah. who has a next project and so Grove was the cool press that picked it up. And people are people are liking it, but there are definitely rooms full of dog people are sitting there. And if I read the wrong part, they're like, where's the dog? Right. You know? And I asked that question wow. in the book because the dog goes away It's for a whole a while. new audience. Now, like, dog owners are going to read Eileen Miles. The doggista. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. You, it's, your, it's not your first time in Montreal. I want to end on this. No, and I, I love Montreal. <laughs> I've been coming here you, since I was young. You yes. were here the first time you were 19, you said, before we... Uh... I was in college, and my um, one of my friends decided, we, we thought we like wanted to get out of America. And we were like, Montreal, Montreal, you know? <laughs> and so we went in the winter in January. It was colder than I had ever felt cold <laughs> yeah. in my life. We stayed it was just some... after the expo, right? Expo 67, That's which a... is probably yeah. how you've heard of the city? 
I, yeah, but also I'm from Boston. Yeah, I grew okay. up in Boston, so it's just like I had family that would go to some religious oratory yeah. in St. Joseph or yeah, something. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's just like Catholics yeah. go yeah, to... The Catholic connection. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so um, so we went and we just had a horrendous... I mean, like, we just... You know, that little girl trip, like I used to, I went to New York like that, too. You just go to the wrong part of the city. You wander around. You don't have enough money. You spend it stupidly. Weird guys hit on you and stuff. And then finally, we were so broke and we wanted to spend more money. We cashed in our tickets and decided to hitchhike home. The first guy that picked us up took us into alleys and said obscene things and started jerking off and screaming, you know. And, and we ran. And then some nice man picked us up who worried about whether our hands were cold and whether we had gloves and we got home. And yeah. it was just like crazy. That is crazy. I, we hope you have a better experience this time. <laughs> <laughs> already. Already. And this is amazing. Thank, Thank you so much, Eileen. Thank you yeah. so, Honestly, so, so much. We, we feel so lucky to have, have a good you week in Montreal. Talk. Thank you. Yeah, Thank you. We have a live performance today by a comedian that I adore and I'm so inspired by. Their name is Chantal Morastica. You know you, Chantal. Yeah, you perform with them. Yeah, and Chantal organizes this incredible show called Queer and Present Danger, um, which is an LGBTQ plus comedy show that they bring across Canada. And in each city that they go to, um, they sort of organize and unify the queer talent in that city, put them on an amazing stage, give them a platform. It's a really incredible show. And I think Chantal is just so fiercely talented. And when I watch them on stage, I'm just in awe. So I'm so excited that we get to showcase one of their performances from the Queer and Present Danger Tour. So let's take a listen to that. I feel like on a scale of one to gay, I'm like a strap-on wearing a pantsuit. I'm Hillary Clinton. I'm Hillary Clinton. But it's 2016, so like straight people want to be like really like inclusive with us, and they're like, no, we accept you. We don't know what that means, but yeah, yeah. Yes. We totally, we get it. And it's like, it, it's too, whatever. Throw around the year all you want, but you don't have to be okay with everything that we do. Some of the things that we do are super fucking crazy to straight people. They don't get it, and they don't have to get it. But being accepting just looks different to them. Like, my best example is, like, seeing straight people at a gay pride parade because they're like, No, you know you, you who wears pants? Who wears pants anymore? Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not uncomfortable. I am comfortable more so. I don't even know what to work for it. I don't even know what to work for it. I'm so comfortable. Like, and they just they don't get like they would accept us for anything. Like, I could come up at a straight show, dressed like a fucking pineapple. Just dress like a pineapple and be like, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's LGBTQP now. We're pineapples now. We're here. We're pineapples. Can't, nothing rhymes with that. And then every straight person be like, yeah, 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 yeah. Vitamin C, vitamin C. I love that song. Ah, as we go on. Yeah, yeah, I love it. Dole, Dole, yeah. Dole all the compliments for you, you pineapple LGBTQP. I am down with it. I, it's fucked. Like, I'll go to my, like, friends' weddings, like, it, and I can do whatever I want because they, they don't know what to do with it. Like, walk, just, like, stroll into a wedding and people are like, oh, my God. 
what is that girl wearing? <laughs> Judy, that's the bride's gay cousin. <laughs> but she's, is she wearing a balaclava? <laughs> and a grandfather clock as pants? <laughs> Judy, I swear to God, that's the bride's gay cousin. You're like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, cool, 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 cool. Morris, I'm going to like the way you look. I guarantee it. I guarantee it. I guarantee it. That's a nice timepiece. And I'm just on the dance floor chugging a margarita through my mouth hole like, YOLO, bong, bong, bong. That's my pants. And the one gay, like in any other, like at a a wedding, like at a straight wedding, I was like the, the other one gay person. You know what I mean? Like, I'm the gay cousin, so there's the other side of the family has a gay cousin. We're either going to fuck if she's a chick, or we're going to dance all night if it's a guy, or maybe fuck. I don't know. Maybe I... Who knows? Who knows, right? And it's just like, they're going to come and be like, what the fuck are you wearing? What are... How did you... How how did you get those pants on? They're going to start trying to wear that. No! Go and change. You go and change right now, Chantel. No, and I'm like, no. Not you. You above all people should know that I can't change even if I tried even if I wanted to this balaclava keeps me warm keeps me warm yellow bong So, Trana, we are both obsessed with Condé Nast. Yes, the publishing world <laughs> magazines. Like, we both love... I mean, my apartment is just stacks of, like, Vogue's and W and all those magazines. Uh, I used to read GQ a lot when I was younger, but now it's garbage. I hate <laughs> I hate GQ so, so, so much now. Details was fine when it was around, like, yeah. um, 15 years ago. I mean, I'm 32 and I speak like it. I speak like it, like it's been like. But there's this weird thing now in Montreal where we just don't get a lot of magazines anymore. Like we don't get V magazine, we don't get paper magazine. Um, I feel so deprived and denied, and it's really infuriating. Well, a lot of like the the distribution system for magazines has been. Uh, yeah, it must broken. It must yeah. be that because yeah. I'm like, what's happening? I always used to be able to buy my magazines, <laughs> but you know what? Maybe it's a good thing because I don't have any more money to spend on magazines. Condé Nast is just launching a new brand, and it's really rare, you know, that they would be doing that. And it's uh, an LGBTQ plus brand uh, about politics, pop culture, and they called it them. And okay. there's a backlash online re- online right now, yeah, um, because it, it queer people would feel like we. We could feel like it's othering us in a way to call well, to call it them, but and and of, of course it's a reference to the the pronoun, the trans pronoun, right? So I mean, when I first heard that, um, you know, the the name them for this magazine brand thing, I wasn't initially like alienated by that. I feel like I almost like I felt it was. I know that it's othering, but, but, but I, I also felt like they're paying attention to the language that our community is using, yeah. and I think our community. Not everyone, but sort of collectively as a movement is 
heading towards a gender neutral zone. So I wasn't initially offended by the but title do you, personally. Do you, do you feel like it's like straight people trying to be politically correct in a way? Well, it depends who's running this yeah. magazine and who's running this brand. It's probably queer run. Um, you know, within like, Condé Nast. Everybody's think, probably queer there anyway. So. I think Condé Nast, you know, for a long time was sort of behind the times. But in the last like two, three years, they've really mm-hmm. accelerated. Like I keep hearing about what an amazing job like Teen Vogue is doing yep. um, in terms of writing about the things that matter to us right now. Um, and actually this morning I got to talk to someone who works at Condé Nast. <laughs> so excited. Um, one of my favorite writers, but I didn't even know it. And I know that sounds strange, but so I've been a Vogue reader for so many years now, um, off and on. And um I guess last year, this person named Jonathan Van Meter started following me on Instagram, and I always snoop. I always want to know, like, who's of course, following your, me. Because of course, your name is your name is an homage to Anna. Of course, yeah. and um, and then I found out that Jonathan um has written the majority of Vogue's cover stories over the last twenty years, and unknowingly, I've been reading his work for years. It's a sweet gig. And loving it. It is a sweet gig. And he's brilliant. And I was so excited to speak to him this morning and get a little glimpse into the Vogue world. Um, So let's take a listen to that. Good morning, Jonathan. How are you? I'm good. How are you, Tana? I'm good. I'm so happy to be speaking to you um, because I've been reading your writing in Vogue for so many years, um, and you're one of my favorite writers. <laughs> Thank you so much. I, I'm, I'm happy to be speaking to you, too. I think I discovered you on Instagram. I know, which is crazy. <laughs> and I remember when you started following me, and I was like, oh, my God, what? Like, how is this possible? <laughs> because I was just so excited. I was so excited that that, that that there was someone with your name, so I, I it was very happy making. Well, the name has served me well. Um, I can't lie. Um, how many years have you been writing for Vogue now? Uh, my very first piece was like in 1990 or 91. I can never remember. Okay, uh, and it was and it was about uh, Linda Evangelista and Christy Turlington being best friends. That's amazing. And it was the, it was the piece where. Uh, Linda Evangelista said, uh, "We don't wake up. We don't wake up for less than ten thousand dollars a day." Oh my God, that was your story. <laughs> that was my story. Yes. That's incredible. <laughs> I can't believe that your first story, right off the bat with Vogue, features one of the most iconic lines in fashion history. Yes, the the let them eat cake of the twentieth century, as somebody once said. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. I mean, you've interviewed basically everyone. I mean from Lady Gaga to Hillary Clinton, Rihanna. Do you, like, do you get starstruck? Uh, occasionally. Um, and, and mostly no, but uh, but once in a while. And it's, I mean, with Michelle Obama uh, at the White House, I, I was really nervous. Um, I prepared for hours for that interview. <laughs> but there's something about interviewing somebody at the White House, a sitting first lady, that really is very intimidating. There's a lot of people in the room. You've only got 40 minutes or whatever, and it's, um, yeah, the pressure's high on that one. But let's see, who's, who was that? Was somebody recently that surprised me? Uh, it's going to take me a second to remember that, but mostly no. Like, I, I feel like I've gotten so, um, one of the tricks of the trade for me is to treat everybody like just they're just a person. Right. So. Well, I think that really comes through in your writing, but I one of the things that I love most about your writing is just, it's just so detailed. Like, you really 
bring us into the moment and I feel like I can, you know, like smell whatever scent is in the room and you just pick up on all of these these nuances and really give us this unique glimpse into the lives of these really extraordinary people. Yeah, so I'm so flattered that it's such a it's funny, the goal somebody once I once told somebody that my feel like what my job is is uh at its most simple the simplest is um is to is, people often say what's she like you know right. about a friend they also say it about famous people all the time what's Anna Wintour like what's and I always so my job is to answer that question as deeply and with as much detail as I possibly can <laughs> well and you do that so brilliantly um and of course like well I mean you just said it but I have to say it what is Anna Wintour like <laughs> Because I'm obsessed with her. Like, I mean, I just, I see her, you know, in the September issue or just in a in an interview on one of the runways, and I'm just, like, so pulled into her universe. <laughs> she is, in, in one way, she's the very definition of the word extra. She extra. Um, but, <laughs> but she's also, you know, I, I recently was interviewing somebody, and I won't say who, because... Um, a person that would surprise you, and they said um, she she started asking everybody asked me about Anna Wintour, including the most famous people in the world. What right. she like? I get that question about her all the time, <laughs> and so I said um, I was talking about her, and this woman said, "You know, my mother was a very powerful, complicated, strong woman, and my my mother and my grandmother and my great grandmother were all that kind of woman. So I really understand that kind of woman." And I think Anna is the is perfection, right? Where that as far as that's concerned. And so that's and I was like, you're right. Actually, she's complicated. She's powerful. She's strong. She's a strong cup of coffee, but she's so good at what she does, and she's so loyal to the people that work for her. I mean, if you look at the masthead of Vogue, we've all been there for for so long, and I think that tells you everything you need to know. But you know, she is also she has a, sometimes I've, I've described her as sort of like the Andy Warhol of our time, right? You know? Um, you know, kind of a famous haircut. She's that too. You know, there's all this mystery and glamour, and 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 I still don't know her uh, as well as I would like to. You know what I mean? After 25 years, yeah, I'm sure. And I think that's part of, part of her mystique is that she, you know, she keeps her. She understands mystery, and um, I love that. And so, how does it work exactly? So, like for example, let's say Lady Gaga is going to be on the cover. Is it Anna that's like, "Get me Jonathan. I want Jonathan on this story." <laughs> is that how it works? <laughs> um, yes, basically. Uh, not always that way. Sometimes I will uh, put my hand up months prior to something. I know. I know that something's happening, and I'll just say, "I would really love to do that Lady Gaga story." And so it'll, uh, you know depending on how things go, and sometimes it goes that way. And then other times it's really last minute. It's like, I need you to fly to Paris tomorrow to interview the Spice Girls. <laughs> did you do the Spice Girls interview? I, I did, yeah. Oh my God, that's incredible. <laughs> I know that that's one of the magazines that Anna sort of, one of the issues that Anna sort of looks back on with regret, but I thought that one was amazing. It's so funny. I just, I just remembered, I just reread the fact that she had said that somewhere, right? Um, and I went back and read the piece, and I was like, wow, this piece is really good, actually. Because <laughs> I, I looked back on it with a little regret, too. But I was like, no, I actually really took them very seriously and did, like, I, I did a nice job with that piece, given yeah, that it was I, a, a weird cover. Weird I loved cover. it. Um, so, you know, like, over, you know, over 20 years now at Vogue, Jonathan, what, 
either from Anna or just your experience there, what what's the most important thing that you've learned as a writer during your time at Vogue? You know, it's it's really fascinating, and it is, and it, it I apply this now to so many things, which is Anna hates nostalgia. She doesn't like looking back, right? But she's not she's not interested in the October issue for another second because the November issue is out, and it, and it, so this extends all the way through. You know, fashion obviously looks forward, and there's no there's almost no past tense in fashion. You know, it's it's, it, um, but it. But I feel like I'm going to apply that to, you know, another friend of mine once said, as soon as you're finished with a piece of writing and you know it's done and just move on, don't, don't keep, don't worry about how it turned out because it's too late. Just right. move on to the next thing. And Anna is that times, you know, times 10. She just, she really, really does not enjoy, like the way that Vanity Fair covers old Hollywood all the time, like, you know, Vogue just, Vogue is about the future. It's about, and for some reason, I feel I find it very useful to look forward and to not look back in so many other aspects of life, not just the work that I do now. But that's—I would say—that's the biggest thing I learned from her because I, I was a very um, nostalgic, and... a sort of ruminating person before that. Before I met her, I would. There's always fussing about the past. <laughs> yeah, I think I can be a pretty nostalgic person too. So I don't know, maybe me and Anna wouldn't get along. Um, <laughs> but um, so I just have one last question for you, Jonathan. Sure. Looking forward to the future um, with everyone that you've gotten to interview and meet, who is left? Who is your dream interview subject? Oh, it's so funny. Uh, I, I, I was just at a party at Oprah's house last Sunday. I love that you just that said is... that so casually. Can you say that again, please? I was just at a party at Oprah's house last Sunday. <laughs> 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 I tried to say it exactly as I said it the first time. And it was it was a, her sort of super soul Sunday gospel brunch to celebrate the release of her new book. So I was one of the 200 people at a party. Wow, that's house. incredible. Um, but, but the first person I saw when I got out of the car like sort of walking down the cobblestone street, uh, you know, on her 60-acre property, was Julia Roberts. And Julia Roberts I, I was wearing shorts, really beautiful black shorts that had a little cuff and, and little flat black, almost like Catholic girl school shoes and a really beautiful black blouse. And she looked really pretty. And, and but what's funny is that her legs are really long and really skinny. And I was like, look, she's kind of knocked me. Oh, my God, Julia Roberts, who knew? Um <laughs> And then, and then the next thought was, I've never interviewed Julia Roberts. <laughs> oh my god! And it was just this weird thought. I, I, I'm not sure that I even had it had occurred to me that I've never interviewed Julia Roberts. But when it comes to what I always used to say to this question was like, it used to be Jackie O, right? She was still alive. Then it was Hillary Clinton. But then done that. And then that happened. Yeah. And then I was like, who is it? Who's my dream interview? Then, oh, then it was Princess Diana for a while. Right. Dead. Um. So. Julia Roberts. It's weird. <laughs> I I was I not expecting that answer, but it's perfect. And I thank you so much for talking with me this morning, Jonathan. This was fabulous. It's my honor. I'm th- I'm thrilled to do it. Thank you so much, and I hope I get to talk to you again soon. I feel certainly will. Amazing. So have a wonderful okay. day, and thank you again. Say hi you to too. Anna bye. for me too, by the way, if you can. I will. Okay. Bye. Okay, bye. Obsession. Obsession. What are you obsessed with? What am I obsessed with? Obsessions, Trana. What are you uh, obsessed with right now? Slime. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so for anyone who doesn't know, um, it's, you're probably old, which is okay. Yeah. Um, just kidding. Um, but online right now, the sort of like 
Tamagotchi of the moment for the young kids is slime, literal, like just putty kind of slime. And the kids are making it themselves and they make all different kinds of slime with different textures and they add different kinds of glitter. And I feel like it's really this response to the overwhelmingness of the world right now. And they just want to get lost in color swirls and stretching apart the slime. Apparently and, it's really good for anxiety. Like it really I mean, calms e- you down. Even just watching the videos, that sort of has become like my new like nightly come down is just watching a few of these slime videos it kind of zones you out so let me guess nancy webb the comedian got you into this yes yeah (laughs) because nancy always knows what's up and what's going on and i saw nancy make slime and i'm like what is this some kind of new relaxation thing and she's like there is slime all over over the internet oh she talks so yeah so i like had to investigate and check it out and the other level of my obsession with that is just like all the kids making slimes. Um, <laughs> they have these codes, like your videos have to look a certain way. And um, and if you don't follow the codes, then people start hating on you. And it's kind of competitive. And they start kind of bullying each other, which is also it's so sad. Horrific. It's kind of sad. But so then, you're supporting that abuse system? I'm not supporting to... it. I'm just <laughs> saying I'm so... You're ramping up views? No, I'm just We're... so fascinated we're old this. enough that we were there and like in the first uh slime wave in the early there 90s probably have been many slime yeah, waves before that. in before the 70s us. i feel the 70s yeah, Silly was, Putty was around yeah, yeah, in like yeah. the 60s and 70s yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah what are yeah. you obsessed with um this week music i'm listening to uh jeff elise barbara uh they're transgenders based in montreal and they've been around for a long time uh before they transitioned they were named uh jeff barbara and their brand of bedroom pop is just like it's sexy it's uh it's diy and i really really like it and they just released a collection called greatest hits i love a good greatest hits collection (laughs) and um the song we're going to listen to is called sex machine uh no sex machine sex machine it's a bilingual uh sex song it sounds very early 80s lionel richie michael jackson i am sold yeah so um let's listen and thanks everybody for joining us today on chosen family we'll be there in two weeks
Chosen Family was recorded live at Defy Center. And we're so lucky to be working with them. They're the best. We're live on Facebook every second Tuesday at 11 Eastern. Follow Defy Center on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And follow us too. Our podcast is available on SoundCloud and iTunes. Give us a five-star rating. Don't we deserve it? Thanks to Ghost Love for all the music. And thank you for listening, sharing, and laughing. We'll see you soon. You're family now. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.